0: Uh, my name is Rick Donlin. I'm a 47 year old MedPeds doctor. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. This is my freakishly large family. I have seven children, the youngest of which you must admire, right there, Just had her first birthday last week. That's Helen. Yeah. And um, see if I have any further things to personally connect with you. There is my saintly and wise wife who you will have more um, respect for probably in 45 minutes than you do now, I think. Um, I know lots of you thank you, friends, uh, for being here. I'm going to quickly talk about our work, even though I know many of you are familiar with it. Many of you participate in it. There's lots of people from Memphis in this room. There's lots of students who've rotated with us, so I'm glad they're here. If you don't know about us, um, this is 21 years ago in 1990 when myself and three of my medical school classmates graduated from the school that presently has the number one-ranked football team in the United States of America. Yes, Go Tigers is right. Um, we got together in a, what was our CMS group, the CMDA group, in 1986 when we started, just after college. And we committed to, our, to each other, sort of, I tell people, was a blood pact that we were going to work together when we finished. We were going to be Christian doctors. We didn't know what that looked like or meant. If you'd ask us then, probably we would have imagined ourselves working in Africa or something, but... That's not what we do. Uh, it took a long time to do it, in fact, two years post residency but we opened up our first medical clinic in the most medically underserved part of Memphis, Tennessee, where I've lived for the last 21 years. And you can see there, the, uh, three of my classmates and I, and about six or seven people we had duped into joining us in this effort. And um, let me say, if you're thinking about starting a Christian health work somewhere, it's really hard to get started. There's a work going on right now in Louisville that's in the very beginning stages, and they're struggling. It's hard to do this at the front end. This talk, frankly, is about endurance and about suffering. The great thing if you're young is you don't really know how much you're going to get your butt kicked, right? You don't know. Most missionaries who go overseas have no notion of how difficult it's going to be. So had I known at this point what we were going to have to go through, I may have chosen a career in furniture making or something like that, different than that. Okay. A few months ago, we had our annual staff meeting, and now there are about 250 or 60 people who work at our health centers. And there's not one. There's six. And um, many of those people, more than half of those people, are, are residents of the communities where we work, and we've hired them out of the community to work in our health centers. And I'm going to talk to you more about some of that. But this is a satellite view of Memphis, and the Great Mississippi River there runs. Down And if you follow it all the way down to New Orleans, that's that's where I've lived all my life, in the Mississippi Delta between Memphis or New Orleans. And those are the health centers that we've established in the mobile clinic that we have. We have begun almost 10 years ago as we moved into the communities, and about half of our physicians now, 15 of our 30 doctors, live in the underserved communities where we have clinics. And we have been planting churches in those neighborhoods. And so this is my living room. This is actually many years ago, probably six or seven years ago. But probably the oddest thing that we've done in the last 16 years of Christ Communities is to do house churches. We've learned a lot about it. But, um, again, we're not really talking about that. And the theme that I've been sounding as a speaker at this conference for years and years is, hey, you don't really think about it on the front end, but if you will do work in an inner-city setting or a rural setting here, a difficult resource-limited setting in the United States – it is ideal preparation for you to go overseas. So I've been pigeonholed for this talk to talk to you about <clears throat> getting ready for inner-city missions, but this talk is for everybody who wants to be a missionary. Because truthfully, it's two sides of the same coin. Okay? Your mom will be very worried about you if you move to Afghanistan. She might be more worried about you if you move to Watts. Yeah? There will be people in your church who will pray for you and think you a holy person if you go to Pakistan. If you go to Watts, they're going to think you need a mental health evaluation, right? Facing fears, danger, having to learn new cultures. You think you understand African-American culture, Rick Donlin? You don't. Living with limited resources. All of the things that happen in an inner-city setting, a rural setting, a resource-limited setting in this country is ideal preparation for overseas. And so everybody you see in this picture, but for this one guy here, Jason Dousman, who's here this, this weekend. He never attends any of my talks, so I'm free to insult him with him not being in here. But he's the only one of these people who have gone overseas to places like Afghanistan and Sudan and Somalia, the places where we send folks who didn't live in the inner city with us for a while, for years, frankly. They cut their teeth, missions teeth, in the hood. They learned a lot doing it. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm fighting a little cold here. Um. So what the what the conference wants us to do for you is identify a problem and then try to give you the solution. And then they give us all of 40 minutes or something like that to do it. So. Be patient with me. Here are the problems, and let's let's talk about them. There are immense needs, and this again, this is Memphis, but you live in lots of other places that are like it. Um, we don't really have time to talk about the shocking nature of American cities, but most of them look like this. What I mean by that is the colored dots represent the color of people's skin okay so in my city blue dots every dot you see there are roughly 25 human beings who are black and the red dots are whiteies that's what we call ourselves that's our people group the whiteies most of you are whiteies some of you there's Asians always Asians in missions talks we have like four Asians in in memphis altogether they're <laughs> they're curing cancer at saint jude or something like that but it's mostly a black and white town all right and Depending on who's talking or counting, there may be as many as 60 or 80,000 Latinos in our city at any given time. So, but we're divided, okay? And where there is division, and it's divided in almost every city, the places where there are limited resources um, are the places where ethnic minorities live, where poor people live. If you look at the needs, medical needs of Shelby County, of Memphis, there's actually enough doctors and hospitals and everything for everybody, but there's a widely disproportionate distribution. So there's people... Dentists and physicians trying to get business in the well-paying neighborhoods, and there's almost nothing in the areas of need, which is this great opportunity for us to be Christian people. Every city in the United States. We could list the most difficult ones, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Detroit, but whatever state you're from, there are places like this. So there's a huge need, and there's a limited number of people. Those are our health centers, sorry. Okay, and in the bigger picture... We heard about the 1040 window. I would imagine most people are familiar with it or other language to describe the phenomenon, World A, places where there are roughly two billion people and there is almost no Christian church at all. There are, this morning I rechecked at the Joshua Project's website, they report almost 7,000 unreached people groups, ethno-cultural groups, speak a different language, people who are... You could recognize as a culture who do not have churches and disciples. That's a problem. Okay, and here's another problem. We have missionary attrition. I really like this picture, don't you? Okay, Hard to keep filling your bucket if there's holes in it. The very best mission-sending agencies have an attrition rate, What's so called preventable attrition rate, PAR, of about 5% a year. So if you're in an agency that sends you out for three or four years at a time, for these, one in four people won't finish one of those terms or go back for the second one. Almost. That's the better agencies. Some agencies have attrition rates that are almost twice that. Why is that? Does anyone have an answer? We do house church. I told you that already. So we're used to people chiming in and answering. And this is nothing but a very, very large house church we have here, right? What do you think some of the reasons are that missionaries don't stick with it, can't stick with it? Lack of preparation. Lack of preparation. I really like that answer. I've never met this man before. Yes. The other missionaries, the other missionaries are so crazy we couldn't stand it any longer. Yes. The lack of educational <clears throat> Okay, I can't educate my children, I can't stay here long, they've gotten to a certain age, we've got to go. Burnout and depression. Burnout and depression. Other ideas? Lack of, Lack of mentoring, haven't been prepared. All true. All right. And if you're interested, there's a study, you can Google it, Remap, where people looked at a number of agencies, not just in North America, but even Europe, and they looked at all the reasons why it happened, and you all listed lots of them. It's a little bit hard to look at the research because the answers given were those given by the agency itself. And if you've been around people involved in ministry and missions, you know that sometimes the answer people give for leaving the field might not exactly represent why they left the field. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. So here's the bottom line it's really, really hard. If you have rose-colored glasses about ministry in an inner city or a rural setting or one of these unreached places in the world, you think it's going to be romantic and fun, you're nuts. It's hard. It's great. It's being part of the single most important thing in the history of the universe. It's aligning yourself with the king of heaven, but it is identifying yourself with the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. In eight or nine years of living in the inner city in Memphis, in my own family and the families among us, I've seen people take big hits. And in even longer time than that, knowing and supporting and praying for missionaries, I've seen people hurting. I would say it's unusual for missionaries not to suffer at some time or another depression and alienation. It's hard, and that's a problem. Okay, so here's another main theme I want to get to you. Um, something that Nathan Cook, who's here, my partner, one of my partners in crime in Memphis, is going to speak tonight in the plenary session. I think you would agree with me. When you get in these jams and these difficulties and you're trying to do new ministry, you've got to go to the Bible. The Bible is everything. It goes from this academic thing that you used to like to read and keep up with to... Um, to a survival manual. I, I hate to always use war stuff, but Saving Private Ryan, when, the, when Tom Hanks and the guys are they're in the city and the Germans are coming through with tanks and infantry and they don't know how to fight, and he says, oh, we need to use sticky bombs. Do you remember that? And they're like, what the flame is a sticky bomb? He says, "Oh, it's you know, I don't know exactly what he said. It's on page 106 of the Army Service Manual. You use the compound and you use a sock, a GI sock, and you stick it up underneath the tank and it blows it up. He knew the GI service manual very practically. Okay? The Bible is so ready to help us, so ready to teach us, because it's God. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. There are other ways to learn God's will for your life, but nothing supersedes this. The Holy Spirit in that book and the Holy Spirit inside of you teach you. And when you need help, there it is. All right, so you've got to, got to love the Bible if you're going to be a missionary. If you're going to do ministry. If you're going to be a disciple. There are no shortcuts around that. When you start to read it and you start to love it, you start to hear its echoes. All right. And you've heard people say history doesn't repeat itself, but it... It echoes, or that's the way the Bible is. And we're going to try to look at a few things here today. But the Bible, as you dig into it and the Spirit teaches you, you start to see patterns and learn things. And we're going to look at some of those today. All right. And I hope that no one in here is too young to not know what this is. Does anybody know, not know what this is? It's the Tunes. All right, good. Everybody's loony enough to know what that is. Okay. Here's one of the beautiful things about the Bible, and here's one of the things that you have to have if you're going to prepare and, and execute a strategy of ministry. You have, to, you have to know the whole story and the end of the story, right? So this is where Porky Pig at the end of the Looney Tunes says, this, yeah, the story's over. We know the end of the story. Okay? Perhaps our greatest human limitation is we get stuck in the moment. And we, we get stuck in our circumstances, and we don't have enough confidence in faith to know that God is faithful to get us to the end of the story. And so we're going to look at, for a little bit of time here, a, a particular human being's experience in the Bible to that end. Faith, Nathan gave a talk. He's going to give it again. I recommend anybody go to it. The trick, he's right, is to live by faith, not by fear. And the Bible gives us the ability to see the whole story and especially see the end. If you know how it's going to end, I mean, if it's a movie and you know the ending, there's less tension, right? We want less tension. Okay. All right. So the Sunday school answer for everybody, if you say, well, who should you look to to learn about anything, about preparing for missions? The Sunday school answer is Jesus Right, but here's our problem. Unless you believe in these apocryphal Gospels that aren't really Gospels, we don't know anything about Jesus in his childhood. I studied some of the apocryphal Gospels in, in college. I think it's the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus, like, throws rocks at people on the roof and knocks them down miraculously and all these things. It's all nonsense, right? What do we know about Jesus in his childhood? Almost nothing. We don't know about his preparation for ministry until he's an adult. So... That might mean that this avenue for us is gone, but it's not, okay? Because there's something in the Bible called typology. Have you ever heard of typology? There are pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. And again, as you love the Bible and you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, even though it's hard, isn't it hard? Okay. I became a Christian when I was 17. Somebody gave me a New Testament, and I read it three or four times through, and it was, there was some difficulty to it, but it wasn't that bad. Then someone would say, "Well, now you have to read the Old Testament. Whew. Man, still sometimes, 30 plus years into it. I was recently in Numbers. I'd almost rather read the phone book than some of that stuff, you know? (laughs) There are some beautiful, amazing stories in Numbers, but there's also these lists of everybody I don't know. Okay, but if you do it, if you fight through, if you realize it's the Holy Spirit, if you get through it, you, you start to see pictures of Jesus. So some of them are easy. Abraham sacrificing his son, that story is smack full of Jesus, right? God himself will provide the lamb and a father willing to give his only begotten son whom he loves. That's a picture of Jesus for sure. The Passover story, a lamb that's slain in the blood is put on the doorpost to keep the avenging angel out. Clearly a picture of Jesus that he himself uses in the Last Supper, right? And, and we celebrate at communion. Sometimes Jesus himself explicitly says it. Just as the snake was raised in the desert, so the Son of Man will be raised up. He's saying himself, that was a picture of me, I'm a picture of that. Um, just as Jonah was in the beast of a whale well for three days, so the Son of Man will be, and then he's going to your eyes. There's Jesus pointing himself out in the Old Testament. You see it? Typology. You can be a typer. You can also be a... Hyper-typer, if you're not too careful, okay? So don't, we don't want to overdo it. But, um, so here's the typology I want to do, and I'm going to come clean with you. No writer of the New Testament ever compares Jesus to Joseph. But, oh my goodness, isn't Joseph a picture of Jesus in so many ways? And so, actually, this is our audience participation part for sure, because I have Christ Community Memphis bling. This is like an NBA football, baseball, basketball game, whatever the NBA is was, um, <laughs> somebody witty, and by the way, if this isn't your size, you can take it to our tent on the second floor and get, switch it out for the size. All right. In what way is Joseph like Jesus? Falsely accused. Is accused. that you? Yeah. yeah. All right. I don't know if that's going to, oh, sorry, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Falsely accused. He was misunderstood by his brothers and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Yes, he faced, and he went, and he suffered. Yes, ma'am. He was, sold. he was sold. We're going to talk about that. Would you like gray or black? Gray. gray. Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. His brothers, he was sent to his own, and his own did not receive it. She actually quoted the Gospel of John. Outstanding. Not a hyper-typer at all. Very good. Yes. They both went to Egypt. Oh. <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. Give it to that guy up there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm running out. And that's not going yet. Yes. They were both loved by their father. Oh, my gosh. Loved by their father. That's so beautiful. Right? Joseph's father loves him enough, gives him a coat. Yes. They're both kinsmen they are kinsmen redeemers, like Boaz was. Another beautiful picture of Jesus. Yes. His enemies, he oh, don't you weep when you read the story. Don't. It's me. God sent me here for you. Don't worry about it. I love you. I'm forgiving you. I'm going to help you. Yes? They the of God. All right, and that's what I want you to understand from this talk, the sovereignty of God and their suffering. And I'm going to t- contend to you that Joseph didn't understand it at first, and we don't either usually. But yes, Jesus did, right? But I don't know about you. I ain't Jesus. I know you're not Jesus either. Okay, so anybody else? Yeah, they they delivered their people. They delivered their people. They rescued the entire nation. That's right. Anybody else? Joseph was given his, uh, the role of the right hand of the king. He is right hand of the king, and he intercedes on the behalf of his brothers with the king. Yes, beautiful. Punished Unrightfully punished, lied about. Suffered punishment unjustly. Yes. Anybody else? These are all great. Through Joseph, the nations were blessed. It's an amazing story we don't have time to talk about. In in the way Joseph managed the whole famine. And I used to have trouble with it. Now I think it's beautiful. But, yeah, what, what else? They were silent in the face of suffering. Yeah, I think that's a good one. All right, let's keep going. Very good. You guys... Super-duper. Um, this is the account. We're going to do the, the Cliff Notes version of Joseph's story, and only really to accentuate until he becomes powerful. Account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. My beautiful daughter, I was 47 years old when she was born. This is being taped, so I'm not going to admit that I love her more than my other children. She is so beautiful. And when my genetic material was most degraded, God gave us this beautiful baby. And she still can't talk. She still can't talk. That's right, yeah. She's the seventh smartest, but I don't care about that. Yes, I love her. All right. Let's get to the next part of the story. Joseph is an extraordinary young man, all right? He has a God-given gift from the Holy Spirit that makes him very different from everyone else. He has dreams and visions from God, all right? He is a young man because he is reckless and foolish in the way that he uses said gift, all right? He has the gift that many bright young men, men who are pr- women, who are um, often wrong but never in doubt, all right, that's the life of Rick Donovan when I was a younger man. These stories get richer as you get older. He actually has the nuts to, to tell the dreams that are so clearly about his brothers and his family to them. He's already a tattletale. That part we skipped in the story. He's already given a bad report to his father about his brothers and the way they are. And we say brothers, but remember, this is the Bible. He really only has one whole brother, who at this point hasn't been born, I don't think, Benjamin. All right, and he's got, he's got some, a bunch of half-brothers, a lot of half-brothers. So he's got a gift. He uses it. His brother said to him, as he explained his dream, we were out gathering the wheat, cheese, and my wheat, Chief Joseph tells his brothers, rose up in the middle, and your wheat, cheese all bowed down in honor to it. Oh, that's, that's a great story, Joe. <laughs> Love it. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this, you, this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? This was the dream of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This super-duper cool pullover right here is for the person who sees, as I see, I might be wrong, the New Testament parallel. She's got a hand up already. Are you married? I have an older son I'd like to introduce. (laughs) Okay, I, you know, again, we don't want to spend, we don't want to be hyper-typers, but her answer is this. If you recall, when Jesus, is basically the age of his, his bar mitzvah. He goes to the temple. His family leaves. They think the family's with him. They, 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 they figure out after they've left Jerusalem that Jesus is back at the temple. And she comes to him and says, basically, this, almost the this same thing. What are you, you're, you're disrespecting your mother and father when you do this. What are you doing here? And he gives an answer that, you know his answer, I, you had to know I would be at my father's house. And she treasures up in her heart. And you might have been thinking that about what the angel said to her or that sort of thing. But it is the parallel. The parents who get it but don't get it, who know that the son is gifted by God but don't have the vision to see it all. And Mary was that same way. And we are that way in the beginning. We kind of get Jesus that we need him to show himself to us more. All right, great. Here is the deal. Everybody, if they're a disciple of Jesus... (coughs) Everybody, if you're a disciple of Jesus, has Holy Spirit gifts. Everybody. Everybody in this room, if you're a disciple, the Holy Spirit has already given gifts to you. God already has a plan for you to use your gifts for a particular purpose. And it's a point that we don't want to jump over too quickly. Do you know your gifts? Yes? Question B. Are you employing them? All right, I only heard one yes over here. I've talked uh, before about my son Jack, who's almost 18 years old. He's bigger than me, he's stronger than me, he's faster than me. I hate him for those reasons. (laughs) I wanted him to play football so badly because I love football. And he's done something, he's playing rugby and other things. But I watched him have these gifts of strength and speed, and I thought, what a waste. And he never used them, he never played football, so he never got to develop them. Even if you know your gifts, if you're not using them, if you're not having opportunities to put them in place, you're not going to develop them. Some of our churches do a crummy job in helping identify gifts and put those gifts into action. You need now, before you go anywhere else, to identify those gifts and begin to use them. pray that God shows you ways to use them. Our present models of church are ineffective if we're really going to do what God wants us to do. We can't have a small minority of professional Christians doing the heavy lifting. We need the church to arise because the Holy Spirit has given us the gifts we need. You have gifts. Okay. And you don't need me to tell you that that's from the Bible. It is, Romans 12. All right. So, here we go again. Joseph... Joseph, um, you guys know Wiley, this cartoon theme today. Um, the temptation for young people, sometimes not just for young people, is to see the gift that you have from God and to think you're all that. I mean, maybe that's not the temptation of some of you, but I can tell you myself, again, being. Uh, even as a medical student, trying to lead other people and encourage other people, and feeling that in some sense I had some gifts from God, it was ridiculous how proud I was of that. As if I is, I'm the one who did that. Sarah, get that baby out of here. Sarah Graham. Um, Dr. Sarah Graham. All right. What happens to Wiley e. Coyote? You remember? He's forever just fallen down cliffs. Okay, Joseph, who knows if he could have done it more wisely, but he used his gift in a way that was inflammatory. And that may be in part why the next, this is a huge story, by the way, in the Bible, right? From like Genesis 37 to 50, it's by far the biggest, right? So the biblical principle of proportion, things that get said a lot or said over and over again, are important. The guy's important, big player. If you're gifted, and you are, pray for humility to use it wisely, right? Because if you don't, I'm just telling you from personal experience, God will make you humble. He will humble you. He will show you what an idiot you really are. Okay. His father loved him. You all have pointed that out. He got special special attention from his father. Um, There is a dynamic that will happen, and again, it's a little bit hard to go through this exactly, but when people are gifted in our church settings or in other settings, and if they begin to use those gifts, maybe even if they use them in humility, often when they do use them in humility, they receive persecution, okay? And that is the uniform story of anyone who has been a groundbreaker in the world of missions or anything else. I hope you read missionary biographies, they are one after another stories of people having difficulty breaking through. Here comes that dreamer. As Joseph has been sent by their father to find them, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So, as you've pointed out already, the very ones who should receive him, his own brothers, are clotting his death. All right, it's a little Sunday school artwork for you there. Come, let's sell them to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on them. This is plan B. On the other hand, if you think this through, this isn't really, like, this could come back to bite you, couldn't it? <laughs> this is not hiding the body sort of thing. But they were confident enough, apparently, that if they sold them to these slave traders that they would never see him again. And so that's what they did. For nothing more than using the gifts that God had given him, although he probably did it as a young man unwisely. Okay, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. And the echo, you can't answer because you're so smart back there. The echo in the Bible, yes. Yes, of course. How many pieces? I was going to try to spend time and figure out how how many shekels equal a piece because I bet it's really the same amount of money, but it may not be. But there's the echo. It's not exactly the same. Joseph is sold for 20 pieces. Jesus is sold for 30 pieces. It's more. It better be, right? Yeah. yeah. It's Jesus. That's right. All right. Very good. All right. all right. We're just going to make you this point again. All right. If and when you begin to be increasingly obedient, if you hear the things in these conferences, you read the Bible, you read missionary biographies, you move forward in faith, you will, you will raise the ire of people. Right, and some of those people will be very close to you. If you're not ready for that, you're you're going to be really surprised and shouldn't be. Okay. I gave a talk a couple of years ago here about the story of David and Goliath. The same thing happened in that story. His older brother Eliab, as David is beginning to size up the giant, think about fighting him, mocks him. Who'd you leave those few sheep with in the desert, you little weasel? That's the new the new living version of it. All right. His brother, his older brother is trying to, to, to question his motives. If you do something, some of you have got parents who have very high expectations for you. You've had big investments in your education and all that stuff. You're going to go where to do what? And some of the knives that are shoved into your armor are going to go, get through because we're all broken and fallen, right? We never do everything for all the right motives So the people who know us the best can go, you're just, I've heard this before, you're just a spiritual show-off. You're full of yourself. You're like a Jesus thrill-seeker. You're not really in this for the right reasons. You like the attention that you get. Why are you going to put your children on the altar of your own self-righteous convictions? That one hurt a little bit, yeah. Father of modern missionary movement was a English shoemaker named William Carey. And he wrote a, um, one of these titles from the 18th century that was, takes a whole paragraph, an investigation into the necessity of providing means for the reaching of the heathens in the, in the next following countries. It was a giant title. The point was we should be looking at gathering money in human beings and taking the gospel to places where it hasn't been before. The heart of the missionary movement that started, Catholics were way ahead of us, right? Way ahead of us. Suffered much in what they did. But this is the Protestant missionary movement. This was its founder. And this is what he was reportedly said as he was trying to garner support for what he was doing. Old pastor said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you and me. Young man, sit down. Listen to your elders. Who do you think you are? Woman in the foreground, I've told this story before. I apologize if you've heard it. This is our friend Lee, who is now a missionary in Ethiopia working with the Somali people group. But several years ago, while she was directing our HIV services in Memphis, I invited her to go on one of our short term trips to Afghanistan for a couple of weeks. And she was excited and scared. She's a 24 year old woman at the time, I think roughly that age, certainly out of college. And her mother got wind of this. And her mother did the first thing that we always hope doesn't happen. She went to the U.S. State Department website and started reading about Afghanistan. It wasn't about where the best hotels are, right? right. And then, to make my life worse, mother called the missions pastor at their well-respected Presbyterian church and said, would... Thus and such Presbyterian church, send anybody to Afghanistan right now? He said, no, no, we wouldn't send any Presbyterians to Afghanistan right now. She went. You can tell she went, right? There she is. It changed her life. It put her on a trajectory to be more obedient. She is... um, reportedly nearly fluent now in the language that she's learning of Somali, and she is one of our Christ community heroes that we pray for and we're proud of, engaging in my book one of the most difficult people groups on the planet. She had to make her mom mad, and here's a truth that you need to hear. Lots of times, the people who are the most resistant and in opposition to what you're going to do, if you're going to be obedient, after you do it, become your biggest supporters. If you have the guts to push through. Now they brag about their daughter living overseas. Where's your tired kid live? My kid lives in Ethiopia. <laughs> Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials. The captain of the guard brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. You know the story, the next part of the story. This is the only G-rated picture I could find of this. uh, The artists love this picture, this story. Um, Joseph was well-built and handsome. The Bible is pretty straightforward, isn't it? After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Another reason I know that this story is a picture of Jesus is because he didn't, right? He didn't come to do anything for himself. He did it for God. His answer to her is, how could I do such a thing against my master and against God? When he had that integrity and that obedience, after he looked that temptation in the eye and said no, she lied on him, right? And again, here is the echo of the New Testament story. Anybody, people, whether you're in the beginning of your career, the middle of your career, or later in your career, anybody who tries to be obedient will be tempted, will face temptation. The stuff you've already got in the back of your head is not going to go away. I wish I could tell you that 31 years after being a disciple, I've got the sin thing swept up and taken care of. If you're going to crash through the wall, you're going to get bloodied. The enemy is not going to let you pass without paying your $200. There's going to be a time when Jesus returns and sin is removed and this internal struggle that we fight with all the time that humiliates us and shames us is going to be gone. But that's not happened yet. If you want to prepare for this, you've got to know that temptations are coming in spades. All right? And we're all different than Joseph and Jesus. All right? We're all broken and cracked and we all have our issues and our difficulties. We're made in different ways. Our parents messed us up maybe. We messed ourselves up. Adam and Eve messed us up. We've made mistakes in the past. We'll make mistakes in the future. We've got to allow grace to each other and to ourselves to believe that God can take us further along and will That when we apologize again for the 500th time for whatever that is that we do or don't do, that he really does forgive us. Accusers will come to people who try to do right. We've known missionaries in Afghanistan jailed and charged with murder. Preposterous, right? False accusations. The coffee shop that I showed you, the picture where Lee and the other women were sitting in Afghanistan, they shut it down because the mullahs claimed that prostitution was being done in the coffee shop. It was a bunch of Christians trying to connect with Afghans. The accusations come from without, and frankly, the accusations come from within. All my slides are just to check my memory to... Tell you what to say, so you're going to have trouble figuring out what this is. But I, I woke up one morning, feeling like I had not slept at all, and I had um, a sense of dread, and I had a Bible verse ringing in my head that I didn't know, John 8:44, John 8:44, John 8:44, and I knew because I've been doing this a while that that wasn't God's voice speaking to me. Isn't that weird? that the Bible would be used in that way. So I went downstairs, and I got my coffee, because that happens before I talk to the devil or God, usually in the mornings. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I found John eight forty four. 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. So I used to get mad at this stuff. And now I just go, you're such a punk. That's so lame. You're just a liar. You're a bully. Shut up. There's nothing that liar can tell you about yourself that you can't go right back and say, oh, no, it's worse than that, actually. And I'm forgiven. I'm the king's anyway, you stinking lion sack of you-know-what. what false accusations true accusations it doesn't matter the accusers against you you have one who stands in your defense at the right hand of the father he uses broken people he, that's how he gets glory for himself right all right so we just have this and we're almost out of time so we got we, we just have this big knockdown dragout in memphis i hope that younger disciples here it's not the only thing to be concerned about in our christian life but we need to be concerned about unborn life okay and in our culture the preeminent value of everything is autonomy and freedom of choice and that's what drives this issue here there's a clinic in memphis that has for years only done pregnancy terminations and they're just now going to begin offering primary care so you can have an abortion or you can have primary care or, or, i'm sorry prenatal care excuse me prenatal care and for many Christian people, that's like, how could, that doesn't make a lick of sense. That's because you believe, if you are offended by that notion, that the life of an innocent child is higher than the choice of anybody. Okay? If you're not with me on this issue, just hang in there. We'll be through these slides in a second. The Christian church, especially the younger people in the Christian church, should not abandon this issue. Have we done a bad job of making it seemingly the only issue? Yes, are there older older Christian people who have ignored lots of other things like the poor? And Yes. But we should be champions for unborn life. We should be willing to speak and even take abuse for that. Right, so we decided, we prayed, our elders met at the beginning of the year. One of the things we're going to try to do this year is see if we can find out how God would help us reduce the number of abortions in our city. And we came up with some plans, and I don't want to talk about them because they're all being recorded, but one of them, which has already happened, is we began to compete with Planned Parenthood. That's the bad guys. um, Who have painted themselves as the good guys, actually. For funding. We're a federally qualified health center. We went after about $760,000 that they've been receiving every year from the federal government to do contraception and STD testing and everything but for abortions. And um we we got it Yay. yes all right so this is chantal leatherwood who's one of our leaders at christ community and that's her in tears because behind her are the county commissioners voting about whether christ community is going to get that contract or not and that vote went 9 in favor 4 against even though it's a majority democratic city the reason i'm telling you this is we got beat up in the media and in public on this they said things about Christ's community that weren't true. They made fun of me. Can you believe that? They said I was a, a psychic. In one, uh, there's a columnist in the paper who took up their cause. Um, if we're going to do these things, we're going to face difficulties. Lies. So Joseph, uh, fulfilling the common saying, no good deed goes unpunished, Um, for his faithfulness and not sleeping with his master's wife is thrown into jail and as you have pointed out before a picture of Jesus suffering unnecessarily for something that he didn't do again just as is the case with Potiphar's household he is blessed by God and does all these amazing things because God gives him the ability to do it think for a second and we've got to close here very soon what was he thinking as he was being carted off by the Ishmaelites? What was he thinking when he got taken to jail? <laughs> Knowing that he was effectively innocent in both cases. At some point, someone made the very insightful point of view. At some point, he began, he must have begun to see the sovereignty of God in all of this. At some point, he began to understand, because he said it to his brothers very clearly later on. We'll have a slide of it if we have time. Like, this was actually God's plan in the beginning. God put me through all these very difficult things and forced me into a tough place where I'm suffering, I'm being lied about, I'm being pushed down. There are people in this audience who are there right now, by the way. But it was all part of God's plan. Suffering, if you don't see its redemptive purpose, is horrible. It doesn't make sense. All right. Peter reminding us, if we suffer for doing good and endure it, it's commendable before God. To this you were called. Don't miss that. This is part of your calling, disciple. Suffering. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did Jesus do when he suffered unjustly? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In the end, all of this will be made right. There's nothing that you're going to endure in faithfulness to Jesus, even in your stumbling obedience, that will not bring honor to him and good to the world around you. When he reveals himself finally at the towards the end of the story, <clears throat> he calls them close to come close to me. I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And The fun part then is to imagine the brothers, right, what they're thinking. Oops. (laughs) And now, Joseph says, don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God, in his wisdom, used even the harm that you meant to me for good. God, in his wisdom, will use whatever difficulties you endure for good. It is normative to suffer, disciples. Do you have a theology of suffering? Most American Christians have a theology of happiness. I'm a saved disciple of Jesus, and I'm going to pray for the things that I want, and I'm going to be happy as a disciple. No, this is not really how it works. The most gifted of us suffer the most. Joseph suffered. Jesus is our model. Suffered. Want to be like Jesus? Suffer. Accusations, lies, internal spiritual assaults, physical harm, emotional harm. Difficulties in our marriages with our children, with our lives. This is my last slide. Christian suffering is redemptive and always accomplishes God's purposes. Christian suffering is redemptive and it always accomplishes God's purposes. If we were smart enough, we would see all the things that God did in the story, how he changed Joseph by what happened, how he changed Joseph's family by what happened, how he moved in Pharaoh's heart by what happened, how events geopolitical events for the whole area were affected by this story and how it happened? If all he looked at were these little narrow slices of what he was going through and didn't see the big picture, didn't know that it was part of what, was God, what God was doing, it would have been heartbreaking. Alright. Um, thank you. We've got another meeting in ten minutes in this room, so we've got to vacate. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.